You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 15th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up today... If I were trying to plan a strategy for how to stop no deal, the last thing I would want to do would be to tell everybody about it. We look into our Brexit crystal ball and take a longer look at the day's other big news stories with our news panel, which today is Lance Price, political commentator, former director of communications for UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, and Terry Stiasny, author and journalist. Plus, we'll discuss the UK's silly season and how it could be made sillier and longer, and also hear why Monocle's editors and reporters are working overtime this August to bring you our summer weekly newspaper. Today marks the release of issue two of Monocle's summer weekly series newspaper, which is here to shed some sunlight on lesser explored corners of the world and accompany our readers through cucumber season. That's what the slow news August cycle is known as in the Nordics. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. Here with me are Lance Price and Terry Stiasny. We will start in the UK, now close enough to Brexit, 77 days and counting, that some of its politicians appear to have apprehended the fact that crashing out of the EU with no deal in place is what will happen on October 31st unless someone stops it. Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, has suggested selflessly that MPs opposing no deal unite to vote no confidence in Prime Minister Boris Johnson and install Corbyn as caretaker Prime Minister until an election and possibly another referendum, can be held. Here is some of what Jeremy Corbyn had to say. I hope that they will all support the motion of no confidence that I will put, and that will ensure that this government then cannot continue with this headlong pursuit of a no-deal Brexit, and that would mean a caretaker government led by Labour, which would be a government in order to prevent a no-deal Brexit and bring about a general election so the people of this country can decide their future. Uh, Lance, first of all, is is this prospect going to go anywhere? Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, it's fairly, I mean, it's party politics. Uh, I think everybody at the moment is playing politics with this proposal. It's not uh, a particularly unwise thing for him to have suggested because as leader of the opposition, um, convention suggests that in the event of a, of, of a no-confidence vote, the leader of the opposition should be the first person that be turned to would have the first opportunity to try mm. to form a government. The problem with it is that if there were to be a no-confidence vote, and there will be a no-confidence vote, and uh, the majority of MPs, all MPs, knew that the consequence of voting no-confidence in the government was to have Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, then the chances of that vote going through Parliament would be substantially reduced. So uh, that's the reason why it ain't going to happen. Um, But uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn has quite successfully uh, put the ball into his opponent's court because he's now saying to the Liberal Democrats and to the people who've left the Labour Party and to the other independents and to the so-called rebel conservatives that, you know, if they're serious about blocking no deal, then it should be without preconditions Uh, and putting down a precondition that Jeremy Corbyn shouldn't be the caretaker uh, prime minister uh, suggests that their first priority is not stopping New Deal. Um, Terry, if if at some point in the next 77 days, uh, some or other senior politician was seized with an actual um, flush 
of country before party, and let's say that was Jeremy Corbyn, supposing he acknowledged that this proposal isn't going to happen for all the reasons that Lance suggested, which basically boiled down to the fact that you know a lot of people don't like Jeremy Corbyn very much. What if he refurbished this proposal with a genuinely selfless offer to step aside in favour of a less divisive figurehead if one could be agreed upon? Does it then have any legs or are we indulging in ever further fantastical fantasy politics here? Uh, I think there is certainly an element of fantasy politics in all of this. I mean, we've seen lots of other names that have been floated today, you know, not least by Joe Swinson, the new leader of the Liberal Democrats, talking about possibly the Conservative Ken Clark as a kind of, you know, lifetime achievement award becoming interim prime minister <laughs> for, the, uh, for the time being, which I can see a lot of people actually kind of think, you know, well, you know, there are worse, worse things happen at sea. Um, I mean, it would be a glorious punchline that the, the end point of Brexit is that lifelong ardent Remainer Tory <laughs> Ken Clark ends up being... Being Prime Minister? Uh, yes, I think the trouble is. Um I mean, I could kind of see quite a few people actually in the Labour Party going for the idea that perhaps if Jeremy Corbyn would selflessly step aside, uh, then we could come up with another leader, you know, Deputy Leader Tom Watson or any number of uh, of people within the Labour Party. Uh, I think he and the people around him are, to say that he's very, very unlikely uh, to do that. I think that part of the trouble with this is that we're looking, people are publicly discussing minutiae of what might possibly happen. If I were trying to plan a strategy for how to stop no deal, the last thing I would want to do would be to tell everybody about it. <laughs> just you know, if you keep it to yourself, if you really run a really good plan, don't tell anyone until the first of September when everyone's back, and then spring trying to spring a surprise because the danger is that this does, you know, play into the government's hands. It shows that the opposition is not united, and it it shows that you know it as Boris Johnson just keeps on repeating, you know, this is going to happen on the thirty first of October, come hell or high water. Uh, it does make it more likely that that would happen. So you know, I'm all for uh, using whatever parliamentary means there are. To to try to block no deal. And hopefully the people that we're not hearing from at the moment are sitting there and actually trying to figure out how they could possibly do that. Well, Lance, further to that thought then, if this idea floated by Jeremy Corbyn isn't going to happen and isn't going to work, what actually is, from where we presently are, the likeliest means of averting a no-deal Brexit? Not necessarily averting Brexit entirely, but if we can at least agree, and certainly people up to and including the Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's in favour of a deal, what's actually the best means of averting no deal? It comes back to the mathematics, as politics so often does. And while there is clearly no majority in the House of Commons for Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister, there is a majority in the House of Commons to prevent no deal if the legislative procedures can be found in order to achieve that. Now, time is running out, which makes it difficult. But it can be done, and it's helped by the fact that we have an activist speaker of the House of Commons who will do everything that he can to uh, help that process uh, along the way. So what has to happen is some form of legislation has to be put before the House of Commons that can that either specifically rules out no deal or can be amended in order to rule out no deal, uh, and in such a way that it ties the government's hands. But there's still nothing, even if that were to happen, and that's, I think, far more likely than a no-confidence vote and, and, and a, go a government of national unity. But even if that were to happen, there's nothing to prevent... Uh, 
the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, under those circumstances, calling a general election, saying that Parliament uh, is uh, defying the will of the people and having what I think he wants to have, which is um, uh, we, the Tory party under Boris Johnson, stand for the people uh, and Parliament uh, and our opponents uh, are for frustrating the will of the people. And that is the dividing line that he would like to have. So the danger is that all of this, whether it's talk of a national government or whether it's um, legislative moves to try to prevent no deal um, are, have been factored in by Boris Johnson and actually playing into his hands. OK, well, we'll move on from this subject shortly, but I, I want to wrap up our Brexit discussion by asking you each uh, for your brief answer to what is becoming the traditional question. Uh, November 1st, Terry, are we still in or have we left with a deal, without a deal, or has somebody thought of some yet fourth option? Uh at the moment, I'm worried that we have left on November the 1st without a deal because I don't see at the moment all of these cunning plans don't seem to be yet able to, to stop it, as Lance, as Lance was saying. you know, the, We're more likely to have a general election, I think, than a deal. Lance? I think, and this may be wish over, over <laughs> anything else... Don't go nuts. Everybody else is. That, ..that we are still in, that Boris Johnson is bluffing. He thinks that the European Union is going to blink. They're not going to blink. He realises at the last minute that the damage to the British economy and to British society and the Constitution would be so severe that he presses pause, uh, that there is uh, and that, that, that there is the start of a, a process of renegotiation or whatever you want to call it, um, and there is another extension to Brexit. Lance Price and Terry Stiasny will be back in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bache has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. China has been conducting paramilitary drills across the border from Hong Kong. The exercises involving hundreds of members of the People's Armed Police have provoked fears that Beijing may be about to attempt to end the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, soon to enter their 11th week by force. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi says his decision to strip Kashmir of its special status would restore the region to its, quote, past glory. Modi also used his Independence Day speech to say that the restless region will play an important role in India's development. The U.S. Department of Justice says it wishes to seize the Iranian oil tanker Grace One. The vessel, which is currently being held in Gibraltar, was first apprehended by U.K. Royal Marines back in July on suspicion of smuggling oil destined for Syria. The matter is set to be reviewed by the Supreme Court of Gibraltar. And a Russian passenger plane was able to make an emergency landing in a cornfield outside Moscow after striking a flock of birds. The Ural Airlines Airbus A321 was carrying 233 people. 23 people are reported to have suffered injuries. Local media are reporting it was a miracle that nobody died during the landing and have compared the incident to the U.S. Airways flight that carried out an emergency landing on the Hudson River in New York City back in 2009. Those are some of the headlines we're following here at Midori House. Now, back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Daniel. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Terry Stiasny and Lance Price. And to Hong Kong now, where the two questions posed by weeks of protests, which is how long will they last and what will China do, remain unanswered. Beijing has enacted some theatrical rattling of sabres, releasing videos of shouting soldiers and moving People's Liberation Army troops ostentatiously about the general vicinity. But the crackdown has not come. Elsewhere, US President Donald Trump has responded with his usual 
usual weird enthusiasm for unelected tyrants and indeed his own superpowers, suggesting that he and President Xi Jinping could sort the situation out with a personal meeting. Um, Terry, at the risk of sounding complacent, should we assume, can we assume, that if China was going to lash out, they'd have done it by now? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I looking... You know, looking at all these images of uh, Chinese armoured personnel carriers and things in a football stadium in Shenzhen, you know, the first thought is obviously, oh, my goodness, what are, you know, are they about to do something terrible? Are they about to, you know, cross the border or something like that? Uh, as you say, I think it could largely be for show to say that we could do this if we wanted to. Uh, I think the very difficult thing is what would the rest of the world do if that's if that were to happen, uh, and I think uh, you know these interventions from from Donald Trump are you know not at all not at all helpful because the way that he's phrasing all of his, his expression, he implies that there's something to trade off here. He implies that there is you know whether this is to do with bringing in you know trade discussions. You know if saying if Xi Jinping wants to solve the issue of Hong Kong, and the, you know the whole point that the protesters are making is that it is not his issue to solve. That it is something that you know these questions should be solved on the ground in Hong Kong by by the people of Hong Kong and by, you know, the nature of their government. So, I mean, it's, it's great for the rest of the world to suddenly start, start saying, well, you know, let's have talks, let's have, you know, more encouragement. But, yeah, but the question is, you know, what what would we do if China were to take things any further? Uh, Lance, do you want to take a wild guess at how far into the back of his head Xi Jinping's eyes rolled at being told of Donald Trump's uh, offer of a personal meeting to sort this all out? Um, I don't think he'll be surprised because I don't think anyone's surprised anymore by um, Donald Trump's um, uh, egomania for a start um, and also his belief that he can solve any problem with personal uh, intervention. But I don't think uh, that uh, the Chinese leadership will be taking that particularly seriously. Uh, the real question um, is what price are they prepared to pay um, for uh, re re-establishing what they see as their legitimate control over over Hong Kong, um, and that price is not going to be through any kind of you know military uh, conflict or anything like that. Of course, it isn't, uh, but there would obviously be a high commercial price to pay, financial price to pay for crushing uh, the uh, experiment of one country, two systems that's going on in, in, in Hong Kong. And that would, I think, be a, a too high a price for the, for the Chinese to pay. The, the interesting question is how the rest of the world responds. And you can tell from the way in which the uh, leap the, the spokespeople for a, a movement which doesn't really have leaders, um, how frustrated they are at the lack of support they seem to be getting uh, from, from the rest of the world uh, in support of democracy. And obviously, Donald Trump's uh, intervention is not an intervention in support of democracy. Uh, Terry, is this Trump trying to find a way to leverage this situation as a, and he has actually suggested as much. He's done the saying the quiet part out loud thing again, uh, that some trade deal could perhaps be attached to a settlement in Hong Kong. And I, I guess what I'm wondering, is that Trump noticing how the stock market is responding to his ongoing trade war with China and trying to find a way out of this? Yes, I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we know about how Trump sees himself is that he thinks, you know, he is, you know, the master of the art of the deal, you know, the, in the title of the ghostwritten book. And he does always, you know, whether he's any good at that or not is a whole other question, but he does always think that there is something to trade off. And having seen, yeah, the massive uh, falls in the US stock markets, which he, again, always uses as a measure of his own personal uh, popularity and success, then he probably is worried about that. He's also looking further ahead to, 
you know, the prospects of retaliatory action over over tariffs on China. Um, but as I said, you know, in his head, maybe these are things that are trade tradable against one another. The rest of the world should be saying, you know, you cannot, should not be able to trade off what their kind of democracy there is in Hong Kong against uh, against a trade deal. These are not, you know, commensurate things that can be that can be played off against one another, or at least they shouldn't be. Uh, Lance, just before we do move off this subject, that point you raised earlier about the lack of overt support for democracy in Hong Kong, is there perhaps anything to be said in favour of that relative silence, i.e. are other countries realising that sort of coming full-throated to Hong Kong's defence is possibly not going to help uh, calm things down. Yeah, I think there is some uh, some justification for that argument. Um, and um, I think that um, Western governments, and in particular, actually, Britain as the former colonial power, uh, need to be very careful about the way in which they phrase things. Uh, but the interesting question, I think, is, is, is about public opinion rather than government opinion uh, and the extent to which, um, you know, we haven't seen a massive social media um, campaign outside of Hong Kong in support of uh, the protesters there, partly, I think, because people find the issue a little bit complex. Um, mm. But um, I, I, I can understand why the people of Hong Kong might feel frustrated at the, at the lack of grassroots support from Western countries. Okay, well, let's return finally on the news panel to the UK. It is August, a time of year once known to newspapers as silly season, which is to say a time when all the usual sources of news were on holiday, clearing pages for glorious overcoverage of stories about runaway donkeys, gargantuan cucumbers, crop circles, killer squirrels from Siberia, and so forth. Recent years, regrettably, have furnished a more consistent supply of actual news, even throughout the summer longueurs. Longueurs. Long, I've never figured out how to pronounce that. Every way you pronounce, try to pronounce that word sounds wrong. It doesn't look anything like how it comes out of anyway. The question thus raised is, might there be something to be said for a compulsory summer recess for politics, possibly even for journalists? Um, Terry, is there? Uh, yes, I think uh, definitely politicians should be forced to like delete their social media over the summer, have an actual proper holiday, speak to actual other people. Um, I mean, you look at uh, Emmanuel Macron this year, he's taken three weeks off and he's getting a bit of criticism as to, you know, why that is. And, and a, but good, go, go on holiday. Angela Merkel's had a decent holiday. It's actually a sign of confidence in their leadership. If you're able to go away for, for a few weeks and say, right, I'm on the beach, you know, out of office email is on. Just, just do it. And, you know, Lou, look at the UK where, you know, special advisors have been told they can't have any holiday. Uh, Italy, where they're calling an election. These are signs of, you know, governments that are not working particularly well. So I think, yeah, everybody, uh, they should actually be forced to, yeah, to have a break and to talk to some other people outside of politics. Lance, it, it has struck me that the British have a possibly uniquely resentful attitude to their politicians ever being seen to actually enjoy themselves. For prime ministers in particular, if they do dare to go on holiday... Uh, they're usually obliged to go somewhere in the UK and then contrive to be photographed having as miserable a time as they possibly can. Um, how big a thing was this when you were working with Tony Blair about how to... Because he he did have something of a taste for the high life, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, 
how much consideration went into what short of, sort of holidays he should be permitted to take? I mean, it is ridiculous that prime ministers have to consult their spin doctors before deciding where to go on holiday. Um, but a lot of them have done it. Um, and uh, Gordon Brown, who followed uh, Tony Blair, uh, made sure that he had his main holidays in, in, in the UK. Um, with, with Mr. Blair, I mean, we recognised that it was a problem. And he did have a curious choice of friends when he went to stay <laughs> in, their, in their luxury villas in, in various parts of, of, of Europe. I think most of the public actually thought that it was fine for him to have a holiday and were prepared to give him a break and, and let him do it. Once we put him on a Ryanair plane, which was ridiculous because he looked so uncomfortable and that sort of thing never never really works. His own attitude was, um, uh, without using the expletive, um, I don't care what people think, actually. I work very hard uh, through the rest <laughs> of the year. I'm going to go on holiday where I want um, and I'm going to enjoy myself as best I can. I used to be the guy left in London because Alistair Campbell, my boss, would then also be on holiday. Um, and uh, for the first uh, you know, few days of Blair being on holiday, I would get sort of almost hourly phone calls from him wanting to know what was going on back home and how his holiday was going down and what we could do to make it look a bit better. After a while, he just gave up and, and, and uh, uh, left me alone and left the country alone and had a bit of a break, which I think he deserved. Terry Stiasny and Lance Price, thank you both. In a moment, we will hear about why August is a prime season for good storytelling for Monocle's editors and correspondents. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. Monocle's September issue is here and we're getting busy in this bumper business edition. Before we get on with the job, we meet the new dean of New York's famed Parsons School of Design in the handsome surrounds of the Rose Reading Room in the city's public library. In affairs, we view the way to work through a diplomatic lens, joining the French ambassador to Italy to learn how to host 3,000 sharply dressed guests whilst showcasing the best assets of his nation, champagne and all. The business section is packed with insight from bright young entrepreneurs and seasoned CEOs alike. From a Spanish restaurateur with a new way of feeding customers to some bright new ideas on the four-day work week, we spin the globe and forecast the future of work. In culture, we put crowdfunding in the media to the test and find out what it takes for a new publication to stand out. Plus, we ask directors of some of the best museums how they manage. Then we retreat into the sun-soaked Californian countryside to relax in a modernist getaway that's been given a new lease of life. Our September issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. You might, indeed should, already be a subscriber to the Monocle Minute, our daily mail-out of top stories in global affairs, business, culture and more. But from this week, you can listen to it as well. A new audio version of the Minute arrives daily at 6am London time. The fourth edition should be with subscribers already. For a preview of today's edition, we hear from Monocle's Josh Fennett. It's the middle of August and the so-called silly season for light news is in full flow. Parliaments are adjourned, CEOs are by the seaside and a fair few others are snoozing on the decks of boats and under the shade of trees. But no, not here at Monocle. Today marks the release of issue two of Monocle's summer weekly series newspaper, which is here to shed some sunlight on lesser explored corners of the world and accompany our readers through cucumber season. That's what the slow news August cycle is known as in the Nordics. 
We augur the future of shipping in Scandinavia, policing in the Netherlands. It takes place on boats rather than bikes, so you know. And take a fruitful wine tour through the Bekar Valley in Lebanon. But our newspaper isn't just about frivolity, fun, or bronzing. It's also a commitment to smart storytelling. We've long believed in the merits of sending photographers on assignment, reporting on the ground, and the capacity of pay-your-way journalism to persuade, to inspire, and to nudge. So, what do the stories of a Tunisian presidential hopeful, or what planes which presidents are stocking up on, say about the state of the world today? Well, you'd need to nab a copy to read up on all that. Cucumber season. Not on our patch. For Monocle, I'm Josh Bennett. A comment there from today's edition of the Monocle Minute, and you can access the Monocle Minute from our website or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And you can find the second edition of our summer weekly newspaper at fine newsstands now. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Yolin Goffan and Charlie Phil McCourt. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 1900, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck, and Monocle's House View returns tomorrow, 1800. London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.